This is the Tame Aperture Podcast. Open the five bay doors, please, Hal. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. I read you. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Come on down and jump some of this shit. Always have Sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the Tame Aperture Podcast, where we talk all things movies from first-time directors, indie films, art house, and much, much more. Today on the podcast, we discuss the 1987 war drama, Full Metal Jacket, as we kick off our run of episodes highlighting one of the greatest filmmakers of the past century, Mr. Stanley Kubrick. Full Metal Jacket follows a platoon of Marines and one singular Marine, known as Joker, as they navigate the Vietnam War and the brutal realities that spawn from it. Starring Arlie Ermey, Matthew Modine, and Vincent D'Onofrio, and was co-written and directed by Kubrick himself. The film was released in the United States in the summer of 1987, and Full Metal Jacket received critical acclaim and grossed nearly $120 million, just behind a budget of $16 million with one Oscar nod. I'm Gabe Wienendahl, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast, and I'm joined as always by co-host, editor, and veteran podcaster, Mr. Alan Martindale. And tonight we have the pleasure of a special guest, once again, Mr. James Jandro, our resident movie enthusiast and military veteran. So James, how are you? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm copacetic. Good. And Alan, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm trying to think. I, is James, he's our first return guest, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah, and yeah. Rightfully so. We're, we're happy to have him back on. Thank you. Uh, because you I, think this is, I think this is fitting, James, to have you on because... I know for a fact I didn't serve in the military, and I'm pretty sure Alan didn't. I'm not sure, though. He can vouch for himself. <laughs> so it'll be good to have some authenticism in the discussion. Well, yeah, that too. And plus, it, uh, we could call it a belated uh, Veterans Day podcast. Absolutely. So, Happy yeah. belated Veterans Day. Thanks for your service. But these are That's things right. that I'm, I'm glad to have you on because, A, Kubrick is my, is my guy. He's my guy when it comes to filmmaking. Alan knows it's this, this is long overdue for me between Kubrick and the Coen brothers. Uh, we've said this before and we made this comparison, Alan, it's Michael Jordan and LeBron James. Like there's two great players and the Coen brothers and Kubrick for me in my ranking system, that's who they would compare to in a sports analogy. So tell me about your James, give me a little bit about your background or, or what you think about Kubrick or Kubrick films in general, and then we'll get a little more into Full Metal Jacket. Well, I'm going to avoid uh, sports uh, analogies, unlike last time, because you guys already know how I feel. Well, uh, we know you're that, an East Coast or Boston area guy, so yeah. we could discuss yeah. for hours. How does that yeah. feel? Gordon Hayward bail on you. doesn't feel so good, does it? I didn't like the guy, <laughs> so good riddance. Hey, at but least anyway, you got a sign and trade, man. At least you got a sign and trade. Exactly. But back to Kubrick, uh, I would definitely put him in the top 10 of my favorite movie filmmakers. I, in fact, I don't think there's a movie he has ever made that I didn't like. So I, I concur. Alan, where do you fit on that? I would, that's a great uh, a setup for it, James. I, I agree. I don't think there's a movie he's made that I don't like. There, uh, there's a few I haven't seen. I'll admit that. 
but every one that I have seen, I own. So that tells you that I, I don't dislike any of his movies. Tell me so which far. ones, which ones, let me guess, let me guess two of them you have not seen. Let me guess. Okay. Barry Lyndon. Loved it. Own it. Okay. You've seen Barry Lyndon. Okay. Uh, the Killing. Own it. Loved it. Uh, geez, which two haven't you seen then? I haven't seen Lolita. Uh, you, I haven't seen that one. That is correct. Uh, and I also, believe it or not, have never seen Dr. Strangelove. Believe okay. it or not. Okay. That, that's one of the few that have slipped through the uh, cracks. However, I know this won't surprise you. Uh, I'm going to admit this. My favorite of his is Eyes Wide Shut. And it has nothing to do with the orgy scene. <clears throat> Excuse me. But anyway, <clears throat> I digress. Nothing to do with it. So, <laughs> nothing at all. Um, nothing at all. I will, I will also uh, vouch for you on that, though. Maybe not the order, but the movie itself I enjoy. I like, I like Eyes Wide Shut. It's a good one. But I got to go. If I'm going to go my tier, I'm going to say Clockwork Orange, number one. Great movie. Own it as well. Alan, where are you at on the Kubrick scale? Kubrick is, uh, he, he's actually a guy, I'm, it's, I'm a little embarrassed to say it, uh, I never had a deep dive into him until I started doing this podcast, and now I've, I've since watched more Kubrick movies than I did before. Uh, obviously, dude, The Shining is the best. It, it's concerned. Um, I also like, obviously, Clockwork Orange is fantastic. That one, I think those are my two favorite that I've seen. I haven't seen all of them. I, ha I actually had not seen full metal jacket since i was very young so this was kind of like a new viewing to me well good let's get let's get into the movie a little bit let's get right into full metal jacket and uh tell me a little bit about so so james this one to me doesn't land in my in my top three kubrick films it's a great movie but i, mm -hmm. I it doesn't land in the top three i'm curious um for you, I, the real big question to me, Alan, and I get this a lot when I read reviews about films, and we'll read some here in a little bit when we do the Google review sex, uh, section, but authenticity. This is a big question for me. Uh, having not lived in any military life whatsoever, where do we land on the authenticity scale, James? From your well, it, uh, well it's funny you should say that because my father was a Marine in Vietnam at the closing end of it in the 74, 75. And he was a Marine. And he says that, I mean, number one, Full Metal Jacket is probably one of his all time favorite movies, but only the first half, because he said that the, uh, having a brain fart, sorry, that the uh, basic training sequence mm -hmm. was almost as authentic as something could get for a movie with basic training in the military. So he, he said from like, how my father put it was from nine to 10, 10 being most authentic. It was somewhere between like an eight or a nine for basic that, training. That has a lot to do with, with Arlie Ermy. No, correct. Correct. His, I, would, his, I would assume so. He was born to play that role. Isn't he, he great? Put on this earth to play that role even though he wasn't supposed to be that role in the first place, the, the door gunner 
the the one when they remember in the middle of the movie when they're going to Vietnam and the door gunner sh- says he shoots women and children yep. and they ask him how and he goes easy I just don't lead him as much which one of the funniest things I've ever heard uh <laughs> but uh I have dark sense of humor that door gunner was supposed to be the drill instructor yeah they made the right decision <laughs> Kubrick but they made but right. they made Arlie Ermey the drill instructor and then they gave that guy the door gunner job so. Yeah, because originally er- Ermi was going to be a technical advisor. Correct. Yes, that is correct. And I think that bleeds through. I think you can see why. But apparently from, from some of the research, he, he kind of vied for the role, pushed Kubrick to kind of audition for it. Uh, and what he was able to do and just improving a bunch of those lines that you hear throughout, which by the way, the first 20 minute, the first 20 minutes of this movie and I don't know if I'm, I was laughing my ass off. Yeah, same here. Same here. The, the first hour in basic training is some of the funniest stuff I've ever heard in my life. Like no comedy writer could come up with what Arlie Ermey did, in my opinion. So well, he's saying. there's something about, I was thinking about this. So I was trying to, to think. So we talked about him when we talked about the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and how he's by far the best part of that movie. And I was thinking about what makes him so goddamn good. And it's not just his performance, because his performance is outstanding in everything he does. But when he's cast in a villain role, he automatically raises the stakes because you don't have to have memorable protagonists or good characters or people to root for. Just by, by, by pitting him against them, you're already going to root for them because he's so fucking scary. He was he was even great in seven, even though he was in it for like fifteen minutes. He was in seven. I don't remember that. Yeah, he was the police captain. Oh, that's right. He was. Yeah. Yeah. Just he's so good. And Agreed. that's what makes that's what makes the first part of this film. This is what I love that that Kubrick does because I was watching this with my wife, and the first twenty minutes, we admittedly were just laughing our asses off. But what he does so good is there's a weird switch in there for me. That first 20 minutes is just that opening speech of him going off and just laying into all these, these newbies and all these grunts that are coming into the, the barracks and like, not the barracks, the, uh, what is it? The, the training, um, but, but just laying into them. And it's so funny and it's so ad lib. And that's what makes it feel even funnier is the fact that, you know, he's just improving half of this stuff. Yeah. Agreed. Like you said, James, you can't write that. I mean, I guess if you lived it, you could write it because you could, but, but even in the way that he delivers it, it'd be tough to write it. So, so funny and articulate. Agreed. Even his movements, even the way he walks, it's so like, he's, he's shorter than everybody else, but he's so goddamn intimidating. And the, just the way they blocked it and the camera movement. I mean, to me, the, the first half of this movie, I, I have not seen everything Kubrick has done, but the first half of this movie is, is a master at work. Like this is, this is as, as good as filmmaking gets because you think about this, they immediately throw you in to this situation. We don't know, there's no exposition telling where these guys came from. We don't even know their real names for the most of the movie. Like they're just immediately thrown in there. There's very little score. These characters don't even speak very much other than 
responding to the drill sergeant, yet you're still engaged in every second that happens. True. To be fair, though, there is slight exposition. In the beginning of the movie, the country music song that's being played is a country music song about guys going to Vietnam. Right, right. But but there's no, there's no like, I came from a, a small town in Texas. Okay, my, true, my... valid. Okay, I see what you mean now, yeah. yeah. And to me, it's kind of a, a metaphor for uh, for for what it must be like to just be thrown into this military environment when there's a war going on. Like y- y- who you were doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. You, your past doesn't matter. And so we're kind of these characters are just thrown into this movie. We we don't know who the hell they are. And I don't even care, man. They don't speak. They don't have a personality. But for some some reason. Kubrick is able to still keep you engaged in that story for the first half of this movie. It, to me, it's a masterclass in storytelling. And going, there's going back. Oh, going go back ahead, to James. Whole, going back to the whole blocking thing. If you notice in the first like 20 minutes or so, when he's walking back and forth, his left arm almost never moves because right before they filmed that he had broken his wrist. So they had to come up with a way to cover up the cast on his wrist. And he did it while he was walking up and back forth on the barracks. So only his right arm moves. And that would explain that would explain a little bit about also uh, the cutting style, because editorially, this is one thing I noticed, which was uh, there, there are very abrupt cuts there from one blocking of a camera position to another. Like a lot of times in filmmaking, you're trying to create a fluid motion of imagery, right? And Kubrick just doesn't give a shit. He's like, here's a, a medium shot of, of the sergeant and then cut into a close. It's just an inline cut. So it just moves the camera forward and it feels unnatural. Did you notice these edit? There's some weird editing at the beginning of this movie, but for some reason, he always makes it work. He does this in, he, he, he also breaks that 180 degree r- rule where there's orientation all the time. He did it like the first 20 minutes in the barracks is all editorial broken rules, but it still works for some reason. And I'm not sure maybe it has to do with what Alan was discussing, which is you, 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 you immediately get thrown into this world and kind of start wanting to figure out who these people are and who these guys are. To, to piggyback on that. And by the way, I might have a lot to say on this because uh, it's my father's, you know, one of his favorite movies. So when he listens to this, I, I got to show that I have some knowledge on it. I love it. Uh, but I do know that it, from my experience and from, from everybody else, I'm sure, who's been in basic training, when you're basic, when you're basic training, you're fucking thrown into this shit. And, I mean, granted, it wasn't as bad for me when I went through as, you know, the guys in Vietnam, but you're just thrown into this. You don't know anyone. You fucking no friends, nothing. So I'm sure you could get away with the 180, the, the rule you said because it's so chaotic. Yeah, the film grammar so doesn't yeah, it doesn't matter, but it's something yeah. as a filmmaker that I noticed, but I didn't usually you care is what I mean. And for yeah. some reason, I didn't care. Well, yeah. it, for me, like obviously, you know, as an editor, I kind of notice editing stuff like that. I didn't notice any of that in this in this movie. I think if you go watch that first 20 minutes, Alan, just take a look. I think you'll see it, but you but but that's that's alluding to what we were talking about before. Like I've seen the movie you know, three, four, three, four times, five times, whatever it is over the course of my life. And you said, this is the, but, but just go, we watch that and you'll go, well, he does that all the time. And it's like, however, it's so deliberate. I think you get so drawn into like 
the principles of how things should be when you're uh, putting together a movie and the composition and the grammar that he just is so good at what he does. He just says, I don't give a shit about any of that. And he's just <laughs> on another level. Like I, I, I think, I, and I could be wrong and, and forgive me if I'm mistaken. I think I remember reading somewhere that he has a genius intellect, like his IQ is technically genius or something, something along those lines where at that point, your brain just works on a different level and you're not, you can't be constrained by the typical rules that are set out, you know, like what you're going to learn in film school. Yeah. I, I think I've heard that. I don't know. I can't, like I said, I don't have the research to back it up, but I've heard that he had a pretty high IQ as well. So tell me about, so it gets introduced. They're in the barracks. Of course, there's the drill sergeant, but then, which is Arlie Ermy. And then you have kind of two primary characters, one that is called uh, Joker. That's his name. And then one they call Gomer Pyle. <laughs> By the way, Matthew Modine, every time he did that John Wayne thing, I just cringe because it's not good. It's not funny. Like, I don't. Why, why they gave him that kind of thing to, to, to cement him as Joker is just, and I'm sure, I'm sure there's more, if you read into it, you know, American John Wayne type thing, tough guy, but he can't do that impression. We're shit, man. He's so bad at it. Yeah, it was a bad, it was a bad impression. I mean, I like his character and I think he's a good actor. So he's believable as a Marine to me, the, the, the non-military expert. But but yeah, his his impersonation of uh, John Wayne was was atrocious. I, I, I thought he was he was in this movie. I thought Matthew Modine was very unremarkable in this. Yeah, not, not he wasn't bad, but there's nothing like I if I, if he wasn't the protagonist, I would never remember his character or his acting job or anything. And that's what's kind of interesting is that he's he's not that over. He's not that uh, not engage, engaging right. in a sense that compared to the other characters that come into this movie. I had read that uh, Anthony Michael Hall and Val Kilmer were both up for the role of Joker and Matthew Modine got it. I just actually read that just before we started this podcast. That would be, that would be a different movie. So, and I'd, I, I I'd also so. read, I also read that Bruce Willis was up for the role of private co uh, cowboy and Denzel Washington turned down a role as eight ball. Interesting. So, and we'll yeah. get into those characters because they're all, they all become pretty pivotal towards the end, especially, but the, Absolutely. The, the opening of the film is really kind of centered on the Sergeant <clears throat> Joker and uh, Gomer Pyle. That's right. And it's interesting because in that, in that first, that opening sequence, I mean, it's half the movie, nothing really happens. But there's still a, quite an arc that, that goes on. You know, it, it's, it's, I've been trying to dissect this in my brain ever since I watched this. I don't know why I loved this opening sequence so much because by, if you break it down on paper, it, does, it shouldn't be good at all. Yeah, 20 minutes of uh, drill sergeant yelling, four minutes of uh, starting to feel a little bit of sympathy towards Pyle's character because he's just getting shit on by everybody. And he's kind of a... I, I don't know if they're trying to build the, if there's a mental illness to this character in the sense that is he mentally uh, handicapped? I don't know if they were playing into that. I don't know if you guys read into that. I thought maybe that's what he had some kind of deficiency, no? For sure. 
for sure. It felt like that. So anyways, you sympathize with that character and then a little bit of Joker kind of uh, encouraging him and kind of getting behind him and giving a little like rah-rah to help him get through, you know, the trouble. And then it just flips because once Gomer Pyle hits, once the, there's a switch there. I'm trying to, and this well, is where the, I wanted to dissect it, Alan, was like the Gomer Pyle, it seems like, because at the opening, he's getting yelled at by the, the sergeant, getting yelled at, and he's just smiling. He seems like a pretty happy guy, seems like a pretty, you know what I mean, non-confrontational person. And by the- smirk off his face, and he can't stop smiling. It's like, it's perfect. <laughs> oh, so great. And then 20 minutes later, he's going to do some serious shit that's completely opposite of who we originally were- uh, introduced to, right? What do you think about that, James? What's the what's the deal there? Well, from from my experience and from the experience of, of my father and other people, uh, the the whole smiling and joking by by Gomer Pyle when he's first in basic training that happens to people. They're in that situation and they're like, they they can't believe that some guy's job is to just literally yell at the top of their lungs at fucking people. So people sometimes laugh or smile and can't fucking help it however i i do agree to an extent with mental health but i don't think he he was mentally challenged or anything however i do think after the blanket party he uh he lost it and that's where he went fucking crazy and do he, we... starts talking, he starts talking to his rifle and then that that's the that's the first clue they're they're cleaning the bathrooms and he's like oh joker's like oh he's talking to his rifle i think he's section eight Section eight is a military term that you're fucking crazy. So the blanket party is what caused him to lose it. And for those for those listening, kind of leading into that blanket party, basically. Yeah, sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, basically, Gomer has snuck in a donut into his. What's it called? Correct. I don't. It's his little container, or his little bedside storage oh, unit. <laughs> I don't know what they're it's, called. It's his foot. It's his foot locker, Thank but you. That's the term. But it's before that too, when when they're all seen uh, doing exercises, and he's just sitting there, and everybody else is doing exercises, where they stand up and get in the push-up position, and then get back up. They were they were starting to get punished for his mistakes. So that's what led to to the blanket party, and the blanket party because of his mistakes is what led to him. Losing yeah. It was the donut. Well, part wire. of it too was the donut in his foot locker Correct. and getting yep. yelled at. And then everyone doing donuts while the Sergeant said, you're eating the donut and they're going to pay for your sins. Yeah. And they're doing pushups. Yeah. That was the, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now I had a question for you, James. So, uh, at the beginning, the very, I think is the very first opening sequence, not opening sequence, but in the barracks when, Arlie Ermey's just going up and down and screaming at everybody. And that's when Matthew Modine does his little John Wayne thing out of the blue. Like to me, does that seem realistic at all? Because when he did that, I'm like, that's the last fucking thing anyone would do in that situation is just out of the blue, do a John Wayne impression. It didn't make sense to me. To me, it didn't fit. Well, I mean, nothing like that happened when I was in basic and, Side note, I do want to say, because people are going to hear this, I'm definitely no expert, you know, know-it-all of, of the military, just my experiences. But no, that never happened to me when I was in basic. Nobody ever said that. But, I mean, I don't see it being implausible that some guy who thinks he's funny, who thinks he can get away with stuff and wants to push buttons, would try something like that. So, but I do know this, is that when I was in basic, and even my father said it, 
there would have been more than just Arlie Ermy for uh, for instructors. So it would have there would have been more than one drill instructor in in reality. Right, but they would have been they, rotating through. Different yeah, there there would have there would have been like three or four of them. So, right. you know, but yeah, for the I mean, it's plausible that some guy thinks he's funny, some smart act could say that. Yeah, and back <laughs> then when you were allowed to hit him, absolutely he'd get punched. Nowadays that wouldn't happen, but back then during the Vietnam era, absolutely. Putting myself in that position, I just can't imagine that would ever even cross my mind to make a smart yeah. ass at that point. It's just stupid. Yeah, you're just playing with fire, but I, I don't see it being implausible. But that's so. also not against the grain for the Joker or Matthew Modine's character. Like, if you think about him going forward, he's pretty uh, passive aggressive confrontational. Do you know he, what I mean? Absolutely. Not not in basic though. Like he is later, and this is kind of what I had. It, it felt like a huge disconnect between the first half and the second half of the movie, because he doesn't do anything else like that in basic. And maybe he just learned his lesson because Arlie Ermy kicked his ass. I don't know, but uh, more than likely, yeah, more than likely he so, does. He does stand up to him though when he's talking uh, about he, he. So he's still a little like rooted in his own thing because remember when arlie ermy's like do you believe in the virgin the mother virgin virgin mary yeah and he's basically will not admit and he's forcing him arlie ermy the drill sergeant's like just literally just drilling the shit out of him like you will say this you will believe in this and he does stand up a little in his own way and he actually gets a little respect from the drill sergeant by doing so correct yeah he's got a little bit in there you know what i mean there's still a little bit of like passive it's a little like a confrontation type, confrontational type of person, you know. But but I also see him getting nicknamed Joker as foreshadowing for yeah. the second half because he continues being that way. Right. It it, it definitely so, escalates later on even more so. He's when, a, when he wears the peace symbol. When he wears yeah. the peace symbol, but the, then on his helmet it says "Born to Kill." Yes. You know. Yes. But. Yeah. Um, Gomer Pyle gets, uh, he goes crazy. He flips a switch, basically. Uh, goes from the laughable kind of cuddly, to me, like in the first place, he's kind of a cuddly bear. He's just like a big teddy bear who can't keep yeah. up with everybody else. And then uh, kind of basically flips a switch. And before you know it, he's, he's now crazy. He's lost it. Like you said, section eight, he's, he's gone. And you can see it happen too, but I, I want to know what well, you, you guys. Alan, sorry, not you. You not only. I mean, Kubrick wants you to vividly see it in his classic zoom in, Jack. Yeah. You know, if you think about The Shining and all his other films, there's a classic zoom into the face, and it's a thousand yard stare, literally. Yep, absolutely. There, and it's it's a total Kubrick move to do the zoom lens. By the way, God is in The Shining for sure. It's the exactly. same exactly. Uh, but what did you guys think of D'Onofrio? Because I'm watching it, and I don't understand why he's not more of a leading man in in anything. Like we don't see him as a as a protagonist much. We see him kind of as a side character in films, and I don't know why. Because everything I've seen him in, I think he's he's got a weird, creepy factor to him. Yeah, he's creepy as shit. Once he flips that switch, in terms of like, I don't even I can't even name a movie that he's in. Off the top of my head, I just know because I watched it a couple of weeks ago. He's in Sinister, but he's that he's just kind of a half character, like he's a side character. Right. He's, he uh, he has a cameo in JFK, 
by Oliver Stone. True. Yeah. Plays, that's he what he plays. Does. One of the, he plays one of the ju- assassination witnesses. It, yeah. It's so. kind of like it's kind of like token appearances by Vincent D'Onofrio. Yes. Yeah. I think he's good enough to carry a film. I would like to see more of that. Like he was in that uh, that Law and Order show. That's and what it was. Law and Order. He is weirdly yeah. creepy in that, and he's a, he's a he's a cop, you know. He's a good guy in that in that show, but he's still weirdly creepy. And I just there's something about him that I want to see more of him on screen. Yeah, I concur. I thought he was great, and the ability to play that two sided uh, character where you're kind of one thing in the first twenty minutes, and then you kind of flip the next ten, and to make it believable that he's going to do what he does. You know, like there's something in the character there that you got to like portray to make it believable that he's actually going to go that far and has lost it that much. And he does do he does do really good at that. Right. Uh, Which leads us into that that scene. Like this is crazy. This is where the to me, tonally, the whole movie switches. Yeah, that's it it becomes you think it's going to become something that it never does, actually. So uh, and by the way, D'Onofrio in this scene is just chewing the scenery man like just totally like like a rat with a t-bone just really love i mean there's something about kubrick he loves when guys do this like he loves his actors to really ham it up because i mean you look at jack and the shining great performance but man it's so like he chews the scenery like crazy uh malcolm mcdowell in clockwork orange like this is a kubrick thing where he's just like you can't you can't cheese it up too much for him but but it works it, it works. It works totally. But some of the line delivery in this scene, I was like, man, because I knew it was going to happen because obviously it's a very famous scene. It's like, man, it just doesn't really fit what what is about to go down. But maybe I, it's just I knew the, the outcome. I was watching. Like I said, I was watching with my wife. She's never seen it. She doesn't. And she as soon as he starts staring, she's like this because the first 20 minutes of this is what I mean. The first 20 minutes of the film, you're laughing your ass off. I was. And then this happens and my wife goes, this doesn't turn out to be a happy film, does it? And then four minutes later, there's a murder suicide. Right. Uh, and uh, D'Onofrio kills the drill sergeant and then kills himself. And then it's never spoken of again. No, but what it, and I, it, yeah, it doesn't come into play on the surface, but it does totally change the film. Yeah, because it, because the, the tone of the first 20 minutes is not that at all to me. And then all of a sudden now it's totally changed. And now we have more of a dramatic piece because the first 20 minutes in my mind, literally could be a comedy. 100%. Here's what I, I, I would, I would agree. I would agree. I want to, I want to know what your thoughts are. See, to me, it was, I thought I didn't think it was, I see, I didn't find it overtly funny, which is kind of weird because I love Arlie Ermey and he makes me laugh every time I see him. I didn't really laugh. I was just kind of enthralled by everything that was happening and it felt real. And then as soon as this, this scene happens, then I'm like, okay, well, all the realism is gone for me now. Like now I can't trust anything that the film is going to show me later on. And it also kind of peaked with the violence because that was traumatic. Seeing that was very traumatic. It was done incredibly realistic. It was shot very, very, very traumatic and then after that, it's like nothing, even, even the, the climax of the film was not as shocking to me as, as this. So to me, it peaked a little early. Yeah, I can see where you're going with that. Uh, you see, you know, getting that dramatic 
beat out of the way really fast. Um, and it is filmed exceptionally well. Like it feels very authentic. It felt real to me and you do feel it. I did. Uh, and the shift in the emotionality of everything change when he, and you, you empathize too. Right. Oh, like, like it's, it's, it's like a scene where you're like, and I, and I kind of disagree from the perspective of like the first 20 minutes Alan, to me, I literally could chalk it up to a fucking comedy. It was so, I was, I was laughing my, I say it three times now. I'm laughing my ass off at the things this guy was saying. I, I don't, I was in awe that he could even come up with shit like this. I don't even know how you come up with that off the top of the dome so quickly. And it made me laugh so hard. And so, but, but I see what you're saying. You get a peak of emotional distress early on within the first 30 minutes and then it's a shift. But I think totally, it's just like, I think they leave it because that's the reality of the situation. Like there's nothing more to say. The character, like we don't, do you know what I mean? Because this is what they're going to experience going forward. These kind of traumatic events and the things that, especially the Vietnam War from stories that we hear brought to soldiers and to kids that I call them kids because they were young. The things that they were going to see and experience, that was just a precursor to all of that. Oh, absolutely. And that's to me, that's why I, I love this scene. Don't get me wrong. And I think it, I'm glad it's in the movie. But for me, I thought at first, the first half of the movie, for first 50 minutes, I'm sitting there thinking that I'm going to get a, a very realistic portrayal of the military and what it was like going into Vietnam. And then this dude just blows his head off in the barracks. You know, like that's not something I, can, I imagine happened very often. So after that, like I'm thinking, I'm wondering, like, is this just uh, sensationalism now? Like, am I not going to get that realistic portrayal that I was kind of hoping for? Well, here's here's the one thing about the realism that I had a problem with. And I only know this because if you if you look closely enough and I've been to Southeast Asia, I've been to Cambodia. I was in Vietnam for a day for a trap. It did, he filmed this in London. Correct. Correct. But if you, and it, look, here's the thing. It, it, we talk about authenticity. I'm talking about more about the atmosphere now, Alan, the literal air, you know, the environment. But if you look closely enough, as good as Kubrick is, the single palm tree every 20 yards didn't do it for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not going to sell it. And, and I'm not, I mean, I don't have experience in Vietnam like these guys, but I've been to Southeast Asia. And once you get outside the city, it's just green jungle everywhere. So it just didn't, it didn't, the believability of the atmosphere to me was, it was a good attempt. And if you're not really paying attention, like I was probably paying too much attention to the environment, but as good as he did, the only time that it worked is when they were in close and the buildings were burning and the smoke was coming up. But if you were looking at like a large area like I'm seeing way more trees than that. <laughs> and I just didn't get the authenticity of it. I look at like other war films that you think about. I mean, f fucking Coppola went to, went to Vietnam or to, I can't remember where he went. Yeah, he went to the Philippines. The Philippines. Thank you. To yeah. film Apocalypse Now. So. And uh, Oliver Stone went to the Philippines to film Platoon. Right. And, and to film uh, Born on the Fourth of July. So either it's two things. It's either he's, he's exceptional at tricking it or he was just lazy and didn't want to travel to another country. Well, it's well I, 
I do know this. Uh, I also read this on Kubrick was that after I think it was Spartacus, Kubrick moved to London and swore that he would never film another movie in the United States. He would only right. film it in England. No, that so, is true. That's that's and, historically and I know, accurate. That I know. And I'm no expert, but from everything that I've read or seen about the Battle of Way, which is portrayed in the second part of Full Metal Jacket, it was a very urban uh, battle. Right. So he was able to get away with it filmed in England because it was a very urban place. All he had to do was find a place and tear it down, essentially. Right, right. create so. a, a, a demolitioned urbanized environment correct yeah and he does and, well and, there and that's not to get a, that cinematography at the end is beautiful amazing i agree uh not to i'm well actually to piggyback on what both of you said the the thing in the bathroom the suicide i think was a great scene not only to show how crazy uh private pile became but once that death happens in a way and this i'm only hypothesizing here there's no proof i'm just taking a guess I'm hypothesizing that that suicide was also perfect because it desensitizes Private Joker to the death that he's going to see in Vietnam. That's you know what? That's a good point because I'm I just saying that's a really good point because I was kind of wondering why. To me, it's the strongest point, uh, the strongest part of the whole film, the first half. I'm kind of wondering why they even included it though because it really has no bearing on what happens to Joker or Cowboy or anybody. Like they don't discuss it. I don't see them affect, it affect them, but I think that's a really good point. I'm glad it, you brought that up. Again, I'm, I'm hypothesizing, no, that, but I think, I think that suicide scene was perfect because not only does it show how crazy Private Pile got, but it also psychologically desensitizes Private Joker to what he's going to see. Because remember, he's not trained to go to combat. He, he's a photographer for Stars and Stripes. So in a way, he goes to battle and he's already desensitized to seeing fucking brains blown out, you know? But yeah, that's, again, that's I'm what I was guessing. trying to say. I didn't say it as elegantly as you, James, yeah. but that's the precursor to things they'll see later on. And it's Correct. And like you said, it's even more than what they're going to experience because it's so up close and personal in a way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. Um, and then, then they get to Vietnam and, and Joker, like you mentioned, James, is basically uh, a field reporter for or field journalist for Stars and Stripes, which I guess is a I guess is a in-house military. Yeah, it's, it's a military newspaper. Now it's now it's online as well, obviously, because of technology. But yeah, it, it was a it was a military newspaper. Still exists. So, Does it still that exist? Is correct. Okay. Yeah. I follow it on Facebook. So absolutely. Yeah. It's still real to see how they kind of have the spin machine going, you know, like how we're going to kind of spin some of the stuff where it's not search and destroy anymore. I can't remember what they re renamed it. It's, it's sweep and clear. Sweep and clear. Sweep and clear. Right. Yeah. It was, yeah. To me, that was, that was very interesting to kind of, and, and who knows how realistic that is, but to, to actually get like an inside look, into kind of the thought process behind it was pretty cool. I mean, I've, I've seen a documentary where they talked about how the government and the military, not necessarily the military, but the government tried to spin the amounts of deaths that we had versus the Vietnamese. So the scene, in theory, could be plausible, realistic, whatever you want to call it. 
So again, I wasn't there, obviously, but I, That's I okay. think it could be real. You don't. You, know? you, you don't have to say that. We're we're, we're <laughs> hypothesizing everything on this fucking podcast. <laughs> yeah. All okay. I do on this show is talk out of my ass. I have exactly. no. I had both Alan and I, all we've done for the last year is talk out our ass about movies and pretend, although Alan's had some good theories and I've enjoyed them. I've had one good, I've had one good theory. I think Alan's had about three or four. But it's like I said, I got to know, or at least sound like I know what I'm talking about because my dad's going to listen to this too. Well, I think you're sounding great so far. And by the way, my, my one, my one theory, and I remember that Alan's had a, a good handful I think of good theories. He had one on hereditary and we've discussed a couple others. I've only had one Alan and you know what the good that I think is good. And maybe it sucks ass. I don't know. Uh, the shining. I had a, a good, if you go back and listen to that, I had a decent hypothesis analysis of what that movie means. I'm going to go back and re-listen because I don't remember. That's okay. I don't expect you to. That was like a <laughs> podcast. So that's a three hour podcast. Yeah. Um, we get to Vietnam Joker is part of Stars and Stripes, a field journalist. Um, and what did we feel about kind of the, and, 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 and it's hard to, and this is where we can put a little preface to our assessment, so to speak, is that, of course, I don't know anything about Vietnam other than what you read and hear about and see in the movies, right? Like, yeah. Or like, for me, growing up, because that was my dad's age, like my dad was drafted and like all his buddies were drafted. And so like all my friends growing up in our neighborhood, either their dad served or served in Vietnam or you know what I mean? Like we're of that age group. So those are the only secondhand tells that I have of it, but I'm curious to, to kind of get your guys' thoughts on uh, the experience go and following Joker through. I got a little, it felt here's where I thought Kubrick got a little convoluted on his approach to kind of portraying the Vietnam experience because I kind of thought we were going to follow Joker singularly all the way through. Now he's always there and he always pops up, but there's a lot of like deviant sections that deviate from Joker and try to go into other areas, little other platoons or other soldiers or other things. And he's trying to sprinkle in these other things. And so the authenticity of it got lost to me just a little bit because I was, I, I didn't have anywhere to focus my interest in terms of like the actual experience. And to sum it up, here's, and then I'll open it up to you guys. But what I'm thinking is like, I have neighborhood friends growing up whose dad served. And one thing about it, and maybe this is what Kubrick's trying to do. I don't know. Is that we were always curious, I had two friends in particular whose dad served in Vietnam and served uh a couple tours like they were and were legitimately on the fighting lines doing whatever they did. They never talked about it ever. We, I was always curious because Vietnam's got a stigma to it and a history culturally as Americans. And so I was curious. I always wanted to hear stories and they just, their mouths were zipped. They were shut. And so maybe that's what Kubrick's trying to do is to be a little more widespread on his approach to not jump because i don't think it's it's about joker all the way i don't know what do you guys what do you guys think how about you jane i'll let, I'll let alec go first i don't think this movie's about joker at all like okay. i i think he's kind of the through line it almost felt like the and it's, i think this is where i kind of struggle with the second half of this because it just kind of felt like little vignettes 
Exactly. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. That's like, it's fine, but man, that first half was so good and it was so engaging and to kind of, and, and then you think like, we're finally going to get to the war, like, holy shit, man. And then it's just kind of like this happens and then they go here and then this is happening. And I, I just didn't, it didn't feel like there was a whole lot of continuity, I guess. And so I think that's kind of, I think the second half of this film would just, I don't want to say fell apart. I'm not going to go that far, but it, it's not nearly as strong for sure. Yeah, the shotgun approach. Do you know what I mean? It's like the first part of the film, singular focus. We're following a couple characters as as pretty intently. And then all of a sudden it kind of widens out and, and I, I lose a little bit. Joker's still there, but there's a little more spread, you know? What do you think, James? All right. So first thing, uh, I know the movie is based on two books, uh, one called The Short Timers and one called Dispatches. And I think one of the writers of one of the books co-wrote the script, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so that being said, I never read the books, but I know my father did. And my father said that both of books, when it gets to the part of Vietnam, is very episodic and like vignettes. Like it's not one story about one person. They're all different stories. And some people are in each of them almost kind of like Pulp Fiction, if, you, if that, that makes sense. And know? they cross paths periodically, exactly. and yes. Exactly. So that is why, in my opinion, the, the second half of the movie is like that, because it, I'm guessing they, they obviously couldn't do all of that in the movie, so they kind of put it all together. That's my guess. Have you, okay. seen, have you guys seen Deer Hunter? Absolutely. I have not. So I, I but, feel like... And, and correct me if I'm wrong, James, because you're probably more of an expert on Deer Hunter. I've only seen it a couple times. Fair enough. And it's, and it's been a while. It's been a while. So, but but in Deer Hunter, there is a little more of a uh, a singular focus on a couple. Like, there's three friends, right? And you kind of follow their journey. No, like it's just those guys. Yeah, I think I think it's three. I'm trying to think. It's Christopher Walken and Robert De, De Niro and the third guy. It's, uh, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah. But, but but my point being is like I kind of what I liked about that was that I I just attached to them and I kind of rode that journey all the way through. Yeah. Whereas here, that widespread kind of threw me off and got a little convoluted, and I wasn't really sure yeah. who to follow. And I didn't necessarily. And look, I'm crazy that I'm saying this because I still like the movie and I love Kubrick, but I didn't really care for Joker so much that I cared about him that how it ended. It wasn't so. I, I was so enthralled that I got to know how Joker's going to end this thing or how, how Joker's going to turn out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, getting back, cause I was going to say something else. Uh, like I said, the second half of the movie could be because the, the books were very episodic and were like big nets, like you guys said. So they combined everything. So that, that could be, but the other thing is you sit, made the comment about you got, you know, guys who've been in vietnam and they, they they don't talk any about it well that i know for a fact because i know a lot of people in fact most people i know who've been to iraq or afghanistan all they ever say is yeah i, I deployed to iraq or afghanistan or they say who they were with like what unit and that's it they don't talk about anything especially if they've seen combat so that that could be another reason because they know from the veterans experience that a lot of these guys don't talk about it so. Right. And they're kind of leaving that vague openness yeah. 
to, to stay it, more authentic in some, in some way or exactly. another. Exactly. Yeah. Because PTSD, you know, a lot of guys who've been over there to see combat. They don't like talking about it because the people they talk about it have never been in those situations or a lot of them haven't. So yeah, no relatability I think, I think there at all. Something to, I think that had something to do with it as well. So no, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, and, and, and I think we've, I, I know I have, you know, close family and other people who have served and seen combat and you're right. They don't talk about it. So, no. um, and even to me, who's a close friend, friend or family member, they're not going to discuss it. Cause I, cause I, like we've do- discussed already three times in this podcast, I have jack shit knowledge about the military. So, yeah. so, uh, it makes sense. It makes sense. And maybe I think that's a good way to approach it, but it still got me a little bit lost in the characters and like who I was supposed to follow. However, it was still, the vignettes were done so well that I was engaged to continue watching, right? One one other thing to piggyback on it, uh, you guys aren't the only ones. Most everyone I know who've seen Full Metal Jacket, almost all of them say, the first half's great. The second half, it's just okay. So you guys aren't the only one, so... I mean, there's yeah. funny experiences in the vignettes. Like if you had to choose one, I'll just open it up for this question so we can kind of move to the end of the movie. But, Fair enough. But, but uh, a, a pick a scene in there in the last, the second half that stood out or that you enjoyed, that you liked, not the ending, but just in between the time they get to Vietnam and to the ending, pick a scene that, that stood out or you liked. Go ahead, uh, Alan, with yours, yours up first. I mean, the I don't know if I, I'd say I liked it. It was it was pretty disturbing. It's yeah. you're just shooting the people out of the the helicopter, you know. Like to me, that's be. I mean, I to even get to a place where I mean, I, I think it was shocking to Joker, and I can't remember who the photographer. I can't remember what his name was. He was obviously disturbed by it because he's about to throw Raptor a, Man. Ra- yeah, that's right. Raptor Man. Um, but the, to get to a point where that you know you understand it's messed up but it's not affecting you that much to me that that's kind of the point of the movie to me is that it it, the and i james it makes even more sense thinking back now to what you said about how joker was just desensitized after what happened to pile like he's sitting there not even really having a reaction to it he's just asking a question yeah he's asking a question and a, a legitimate question like how can you do that but he's not like, he's not offended. He's not disgusted. He's not upset by it. You know, he's just like, how can you do that? It doesn't, you know, uh, it's almost like he's just trying to understand. But to me, that that kind of summed up the entire movie. That's kind of the point of the movie, right? I, I'm assuming, uh, again, I'm no expert, but- uh, That's what I, I got. I have, a, I have a couple of scenes. What One is is the same scene you mentioned, Alan, the, the door gunner. Uh, I, I'm going to be honest, and a lot of veteran friends I have are, are the same way. I can't stop laughing through that that helicopter scene. That door gunner was amazing. He's well, hilarious. His his personality is is hilarious. Like he yeah his 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 personality is hilarious. Thank right. you. It's great. Uh, but the other the other scene that I think uh, nails it home in the movie, and, and it's not a humorous scene. It's when he gets when Joker gets yelled at by the colonel. And the colonel goes, why do you have a born to kill statement on your helmet, but a peace symbol on your shirt? And Joker goes, well, it's because of the duality of man. And I think that, again, just me talking out loud, 
spitballing ideas. I think that was the whole point of the movie was the duality of man. I think you're right. You can have some guy who's normal and fine. He sees some dude blow his brains out. And then after that, he's like completely desensitized to war and death and whatnot. You know, he he becomes one of these guys who's a killer, but, you know, at the same time, he wants peace, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great scene. And he's, and he's delivering that line of the duality of man behind 20 dead bodies. Exactly. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, he makes a comment about how the newspaper was going to inflate or change the number of dead bodies for the news. Yes. So it goes back to the earlier scene. But again, I, again, just spitballing an idea. I think that whole line with the Colonel of the duality of man nails what the whole movie is about at least that's my opinion you know what i think you're right i think you're absolutely right i think that's it i think that i think you just you just figured out kubrick i (laughs) i i agree that that scene stands out but what about me love you long time oh well that's uh i have (laughs) i i have no experience with uh prostitutes so So, james i do gotta ask you this would you even bother trying to talk them down in price or would you just be like i'm on let's do it well, first of all, you're talking to a guy who takes the stems out of cherries and grapes so they weigh less and cost less at the supermarket. Okay. So you're ta- how far how far down are you trying to talk him? <laughs> uh, you know, like a I, lot. I would have been I would have been fine with five. So <laughs> okay. all right. You know, and and I would have used a similar line about my parents won't allow me to spend more than ten dollars. <laughs> so yeah, just saying. But uh anyway. It made me laugh. I mean, it's it's a sad commentary on everything, but it was still com- it was still comedic. <laughs> yes, I agree. Um, and so uh, we kind of follow Joker throughout. We kind of as we get toward. Oh, go ahead, Alan. That your favorite scene is that the is that the vignette that you like the most? The "Me Love You Long Time." I did laugh my ass off again. I thought it was funny. Funny. Uh, I actually, it's funny because I kind of liked the. The scene, because I, I like the scenes that give me some form of explanation. And I think James nailed it. I did like that scene because I was wondering that before when I saw it, I didn't get it, to be honest. I'm too stupid. So I was like, I saw the peace sign and then you see Born to Kill. But when he explained it, uh, when he talks about the duality, man, I liked that scene a lot because then I could kind of understand some of the meaning behind it going forward. I feel like we needed that. We needed, we needed, you know, a little concrete exposition there. It's, uh, also, the it's also, look, there's visual representations of it too, Ned. I'm thinking about it because the scene you were talking about with the door gunner, he's the other, he's the opposite. He's the born to kill side. And the photographer that's with the rafterman that's with Joker, he's kind of the peace side because he's, he's not feeling it. He, he hates it. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. like even visual representation between characters, that message comes across. Just like when rafterman appears sick when he sees all the dead bodies, Yep. But Joker's just looking at it. Uh, by the way, side note, I just want to point this out. I know you're a big Star Wars fan, Gabe. Uh, the colonel that yells at Joker was one of the rebel commanders in Empire Strikes Back. Oh, you're really? Welcome. You're welcome. Just want to throw <laughs> that out there. Now I got to go double check that, verify that that fact is on point. Okay. I believe enough. you, though. I believe you. So. So we follow Joker and then they get to kind of this last uh, Joker meets up with, is it cowboy, right? He meets up with cowboy Correct. who he went to uh, boot camp with cowboys Correct. running a small infantry or a small 
platoon, a small number of guys. And uh, we get to this end scene and or towards the end scene, I should say this, this was kind of interesting to me, the way this played out. And uh, they, they basically uh, they get, uh, they run into a town with uh, a sniper, right? And the sniper's taking people out. He's taking a couple of the platoon members out. Um, it ran a little slow for me. <laughs> oh, really? I'm just the opposite. I like this part. I loved the first, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was just me wanting to, to see. I, 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 I was upset is what I mean. And the reason I was upset is because I was so mad that this whole platoon couldn't navigate around one person. And then when it's revealed who that person is, it's not a, the, the, the age of that person was saddening. And I was so mad that that this, this little girl who's got to be like 13 or 12 was taking people out. And this whole platoon, at least, uh, you know, was it two of them, three of them got destroyed, got to what three. are they three? And what do they say? They, they, they used a term in the actual dialogue. Wasted. Wasted. They got wasted um, by this, by this young Vietnamese sniper. Yeah, that's well, what I was. I was kind of. I know this sounds like very patriotic American, but I was like, "Come on, you guys got to figure this shit out." Well, that's kind of a that kind of <laughs> sums up the Vietnam War, right? <laughs> like uh, the superpower, America, go capitalism can't beat these these communist, you know, Viet Cong. It kind of sums up the entire war. It's kind of no. Uh, you're absolutely right. There's a great there's a great analogy analog- going on there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the part of this whole sequence that, you know, it, it didn't hit me right was the every single time one of these guys got shot, the brutal slow motion and the brutal screaming that is just, I mean, he just hammers you over the head with it. He really loves that slow motion shot in the foot. Let's cut back to the platoon shot in the gut. Let's cut back to the platoon. Like it just went on and on. And can we say, I mean, eight ball can take a shot. Cause he took like, <laughs> I don't know how big those rounds are. Those were big rounds. He, he was still alive. Like five minutes in taking shots to the leg and other areas. I'm pretty sure he would have been dead like four minutes earlier. <laughs> I'm just saying. James, it's a lot of shots. It's it's a lot of shots to take. Correct. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Like a video game or something, man. What did you think about that scene leading up to the end there, uh, where they're getting basically sabotaged by a single soldier on the Viet Cong side? For Alan or me? For you, James. Oh, I mean, I enjoyed it. yeah, I mean, I, you guys have kind of hit all everything I was going to say, especially the whole analogy about the Vietnam War. You know, uh, little young kids that are like 17 years old, they're kicking her ass, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, you guys kind of covered everything. And here's, so. here's the other thing. So, so uh, eight ball goes out, eight ball uh, gets taken out. And then is it mother? What's his name? What's his well, it's it's Doc J and Eight Ball. They get wasted, and then mo- and a mother goes out there with a sixty cal. 
That's right. Mother goes out. And this is, once again, you see the visual representation because Cowboy wants nothing to do with it. He's going to hold back. He doesn't want to go into the fire, right? And Mother's like, I'm going all in. So you have kind of two two individual type, the duality of the guy that doesn't want to do it and the guy that's going to go full throttle. Uh, Mother goes running in, starts to figure it out. Cowboy reluctantly gets pulled in by Mother to say, hey, He's calling him in because he's telling him there's just one sniper. You got to come up to this point where it's safe. And then Cowboy takes a group of guys, including Joker and himself, up to that point and gets taken out. And that's it. That was a, that was a tough one to watch. That scene, actually, that, when he gets to Cowboy, uh, that was a tough one for me. I, I, I felt it. Like it, was, it. It felt real. It felt authentic when he, when he goes out. And did you notice that during Cowboy's death scene, there's a structure in the back that looks like the black monolith from 2001 Space Odyssey? No, but now I'm like really intrigued. And, and supposedly Kubrick was asked about that and he just chuckled and he goes, oh, it must have been a coincidence. I didn't mean to do that, which I think <laughs> is bullshit. And knowing what I know about Kubrick, he fucking put it there on purpose. So this was, is this when Cowboy's dying? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the shot of like uh, Joker holding underneath him and yeah. it's behind him. There's a monolith. It's, it's a structure that looks very much like the monolith I from 2001. It. Now I got to so, go back and watch that section. Just cause... saying. Kubrick was very meticulous with everything. There, yeah, there's there's no way he did that by accident. Right. He fucking wanted and planned to put it there to fuck of course. with people. Of course. <laughs> so, so. He's lying he's in his probably, grave right now laughing his ass off because he's like, exactly. these three like, knuckleheads are talking about monoliths in Full Metal Jacket. What a bunch of dumbasses. He, probably, he was doing it, and I'm sure he was thinking, I'm fucking Stanley Kubrick. I can do whatever the fuck I want. I'm going to put it in there. And he can, because so, by the way, exactly. a side note, James, you were saying he didn't, after Spartacus, that's all true, by the way, after yeah. Spartacus, it left a bad taste in his mouth. And he was yeah. like, I'm not going back to film. And also he's going to do everything his way with full creative control. So because Absolutely. of that, like you said, he didn't do things unintentionally. Uh, yeah. He had full creative control and full intention. And I've, I've had to show, like literally go to websites and show people that I knew in the military who did not believe, like, for example, they thought The Shining was filmed in Colorado. And I'm like, you're fake news. It's filmed in fucking England. And same thing with Full Metal Jacket. I tell people it's filmed in London. And they're like, no, no, it had to be filmed at Paris Island in, in Vietnam or the Philippines. I'm like, no, you're fake news. I've had to show people this because yeah. nobody believes me. Well, it's like so, Eyes Wide Shut. It's supposed to be New York. It's not New York. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and by the way, guys, uh, just because I say fake news doesn't mean I endorse Donald Trump. I just like saying fake news. Just saying. Okay. It didn't cross my mind, but now that you okay. brought it up. No. <laughs> let's get just into saying, politics. I, I like the term. I like calling people fake news. Just saying. Uh, so. We'll move on. We'll get to the, the last little bit here. Cowboy dies. They find their way. They smoke it out. They get up to the building where this sniper was. Uh, Joker, Mother, the photographer, uh, Rafterman, all these guys are uh, seeking out this sniper that took took their uh, platoon out 
or at least the members of their platoon. And uh, it's revealed Joker. This was an interesting scene, the ending to me, because this is where I was curious about authenticity. Okay. He, he takes his rifle. He, he looks forward. He sees the sniper in front of him and he goes to shoot and his rifle clicks. It's empty. What the fuck is that about? That's not real. No soldier's going to have an empty round in there. <laughs> what I, is going I, I, on? I can't speak on, on that specific scenario like you just said in the movie. I can't speak on that. However, I will say this. I've, I've been in an experience or two where I've seen guys who are all gung-ho and, you know, saying they were ready to, you know, kill the bad guys like John Wayne and give this whole American speech. And then when the shit hits the fan, they fall apart like the Patriots playing the Giants in the Super Bowl. Just saying. So, Or, James, for, for you, I'm going to throw this out there, like the Falcons playing the Patriots. In the Super Bowl, correct, yes. But it's, like I said, I, I can't speak on that specific scene where it goes click, but I, I do know of experiences. I get, I get what you're saying. I, I, yeah. I get that he fumbles, and I just didn't like the – I would have almost rather liked him to just not be able to do it because yeah. he's, he can't do it. I didn't like that his gun was empty. The rifle had no rounds. Yeah. I, and you know, I, I actually didn't mind the scene because it was, it was more to me, it would be more original than a guy who couldn't do it, who could pull the trigger. I mean, yeah, that's just me. Considering what he does later, you know, like in a few minutes. Correct. Correct. He does make up for it in a way. In a way. So, so basically, he fumbles the gun. The empty rounds don't fire. So he fumbles his gun. He kind of has an internal moment. And then yep. his photographer, friend, Rafterman, right? It's Rafterman? Rafterman, yeah. Rafterman. He take uh, this, by the way, this sniper turns around when she, this is a, I'm saying like 13 years old. Like this is a young girl. Turns around and just starts firing with a vengeance upon, yeah. upon uh, Joker. Like, no, it's like the wrath is coming down on him. <laughs> she has no, no reservation about just letting it fly. Yeah. And yep. then uh, fortunately, Rafter Man, in this case, it, I don't even say fortunately, because it's still sad either way, but Rafter Man comes in and <laughs> takes out the sniper. Rafter Man's jacked up about taking this. Up, he is jacked up but, yeah. about taking this girl out. I think, I mean, because it just seems like he wanted combat. That's all he wanted. He wanted to get yeah. And now he's there and he's, he's done something, quote unquote, heroic, depending on how you look at it. And he's jacked up. But it's also kind of like, dude, read the room. That was a child. You know, like, like it's, uh, I understand you had to do it, but you should be jacked up because it is a kid. It's, yeah. Th this is once again where Kubrick plays, and, and I'll use that word, that phrase again, but there is a duality there because part of you is excited that he, that Joker was saved because you want to see him saved. Part of you is devastated that a 13 year old kid, I'm just making the age up, but she's young as yeah. hell. Yeah. 13 year old kid is dead. And in a, in a position that they have to be what they're doing, doing what they're doing. Do you know what I mean? And you play exactly, with those, yeah. those dual forces again, really well. Um, 
she doesn't die entirely. She's still kind of fumbling on the ground. She starts rolling off a prayer and doing her thing. And then this is where Joker has to meet his, his, his decision. Right. And this is where it's interesting again, because the reality is the girl's going to die. She's, I mean, mother says it, he says the line, she's dead meat. Yeah. And, and so she's going to die either way. So Joker's decision to shoot her with his hand, with his pistol and kind of it, it, to me, it's like shooting old yeller. <laughs> That's the worst thing I know, but you know what I mean? Like, I know what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. But that you have a suffering individual who's in no way going to live. And so, and it's a, it's a no win. It's a, yeah. So he, is he, is he, is he doing her a favor or is he crossed the line? I don't know. This is where there's other decisions. Cause you're talking about human life that it gets real sensitive and, and we, we know this know. is a movie, so we can, we can talk about it in old yellow terms, but <laughs> cause it's but you not never know. even, even when he does mercy kill, I guess you could say the girl, you never really know if he's, if he's still Joker or if he's crossed over. Uh, that being said, I did read that supposedly there was going to be a scene. I don't know if they ever shot it, but supposedly there was going to be a scene where mother takes the machete that he carries the whole movie and chops her head off <laughs> and then, and then holds her head up like a fucking trophy and like in clash of the Titans, you know, when he has the goose's head. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm and glad by the way, by the way, side note, uh, slightly to go back to the duality of man, there was a film, the scene that I read that they deleted where it shows uh, U.S. soldiers playing soccer and the camera zooms in like Kubrick usually does. And you find out that the soccer ball is a severed human head. See, I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad they didn't do that because uh, oh. I, I love gore. You know, I love gore. It's, it's great. But I, I don't think we needed those type of over the top moments yeah. to sell it you know like i think he, he already sold it i i completely agree i mean i would still like to see the deleted scene though yeah oh. i i agree they they've they had already established a duality they they wouldn't need that scene i agree so and that leaves us with the end credits which well, before that, before oh, that uh, i love i love this little scene this little sequence to close out the film where the city is burning they have absolutely obliterated this town and they are singing the mickey mouse clubhouse as they yes. march back like to me it's just like here's your freedom here's the freedom we brought to you you know to me it's it's just i i just love it was such a beautiful shot and it really i mean the fact that they're singing a mickey mouse song it, it's so great it's it was a great choice well i also think that the end scene would be the final uh, nail in the coffin for the whole point of duality of man. There they are. They just killed some girl who was killing them. And they're walking through a city where I'm sure they're going to have to deal with more combat. And they're singing a fucking kid's song. So to me, like I said, though, I, to me, again, just my idea and opinion I think the whole movie is about duality of man. Yeah, and I think just a kid song, hammered. a capitalist Disney kid song. That's very the, correct. Very yeah, American. Absolutely. 
child's right right but so. it, it rolls credits with the rolling stones correct called paint it black paint it that, black i'm not a huge rolling stones fan but i love that song i actually let the credits roll just so i could listen to the song it's a great song i i i, I like that song a lot too um and there you have it we've kind of walked through this kubrick film titled full metal jacket i have a couple of uh run-throughs i want to do with you guys then i want to get your guys's rating james if you remember the rating system for us is one out of ten right okay. and then you choose a prop or a uh, a representation a symbol so like uh rifles or whatever seven rifles or whatever it might be so i'll let you think okay. about that for a second while i go through some of these okay so this is alan's favorite part of the podcast that we've introduced over the last little while i love this man some I, of the views are amazing alan, i don't know how this is going to roll over with this type of movie i know that's i was wondering that because we're not it's not real controversial on whether it's good or not. So you're not, I don't think you're going to get people. I don't know. We have 149 reviews on Google. I like to read a few sentences from each review, James, and just see what people are saying about this film. So Go for it. Uh, we have one here and just the first couple sentences, of course, is what we would expect. It was amazing in all caps, by the way. In all caps. <laughs> They're always in all caps. It's always all caps. Good or bad, it's always in all caps. And, and here's a controversial statement. This is why I don't like these kind of reviews because I don't know that I can believe it I, to, to what he's saying, okay? So he says, it was amazing. It teaches me a lot about what they were like in war. It seems a little, seems a little naive to me. I'm not saying there's not authentic themes, or th but I just mean that it teaches, I don't know about that. Um, the real question is, did it scare that person before? <laughs> that was one of the best reviews ever. It said, "What did it, I think? I think the review was just it scared me to core." Here, here, no, but it does say this, Alan. It says it was a great plot twist when the fat guy was getting punished in a really terrible way and then killed their captain. First off, who's the fat guy? And there is no captain. So, <laughs> yeah. Let's get our facts straight here, Till Wolf. Still, once again, once again, someone is fake news. Just saying. Yeah, Till Wolf's review is just is encapsulates why I love this segment so much. Yes. It's just Listening so. To people articulate their responses. Okay, here's one that kind of goes along with what we were saying, and in the, just a few sentences here. First half is entertaining, and second half is dark. That's a fair assessment. Although, okay, no, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, and like, a, James, I'm just pulling these. I haven't researched these. I'm, I'm, I'm on the fly here. You're good. No worries. Okay, here's one uh, from Dustin V. Thanks a lot, Dustin V. I'm excluding your last name as, as, so I don't throw you under the bus. It is a five-star review, though. He says, wow, period. I think I watched this for the first time in, in my early 30s. It was all right, but I didn't get all of the obsession with the other guys I knew had for it. He, these guys cannot write. Now I am watching it again at 41, and I have to say my mind is much more open, and, mu and I am catching so much 
that just flew over me last time around. Okay, Dustin V, you're fair. Now I'm trying to find one with some, here's a four star. The film screams of testosterone hormones. I think I grew a pair of balls of my own. <laughs> That's Alyssa C. Alyssa C grew a pair of balls for us. Thanks, Alyssa. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if I can agree with that review, but it's quite funny. It was, it, that was good writing, no? Yeah, good. it was. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm trying to find, I'm scrolling through. There's 149, but I wanted to find one. Okay. Uh, Janine G, very much a Stanley Kubrick film. I watched Black Hawk Down yesterday. Full Metal Jacket is meant to spend a lot of time on boot camp and the unknown of the fight. I don't know what that means, Janet G. Please come again. <laughs> I really want to find a negative one. So far, all these are... Uh, the, the best are the ones where uh, it, it has a lot of reviews and then oh, someone gets so pissed off, or a lot of good reviews, and someone gets so angry and livid that everyone loves the movie because then they just can't hold back. Right. Here's, here's one too, Alan. Overall, it's a great movie. But there are there are its flaws and weaknesses. There are I'm its yes, I'm I'm reading these verbatim. There are its flaws and weaknesses. I suggest watching videos going over the actual on YouTube to get a better understanding of why certain parts are included in the movie and how it all connects. First well. off, go back to grammar school. Second off, articulate your syntax. Those were horrible structures of sentences. And you're out of here. Go Would watch you YouTube to figure out how Vietnam works. <laughs> okay, thank you. You say um, that you has, uh, there are its flaws and weaknesses? Yeah. 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 I think oh, that. Joshua W, one star. Here Finally, here it is. This is what I was looking for. <clears throat> First time I've read it. Full Metal Jacket is possibly the most pointless Vietnam War ever produced. A war movie. I'm sorry. I actually flubbed up there. Sorry, Joshua. Let me start over. Full Metal Jacket. You get an articulate one and Gabe screws it up. Flub it up. Full Metal Jacket is possibly the most pointless Vietnam War movie ever produced. Terrible meandering storyline and dialogue intermixed with even worse acting from Modine makes this one of the easiest no's for me. Interesting. Joshua W, six months ago, coming in with thunder. <laughs> I mean, I, I get the points. I think he's just overstating his criticism. I don't think Matthew Modine was bad. I just don't think he was good. Yeah, he uh, was neutral. Yeah, he's very neutral. You cruise neutral the whole movie. Which is okay. interesting in a war movie. True. <clears throat> okay, last one. Here it is. Terry D, one year ago, one star. The Mickey Mouse song at the end seems like Kubrick was insulting the Marines. My dad and my brother and my dad and my brother both fought in this war at the same time. I was offended. Damn. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Can I, I say I that? First off, Terry D, get the fuck out of here. And then second off, one person found that useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what? It was probably Terry D. 
Terry D finding it her own review yeah. useful. Yeah. I mean, what about you, James? You were in the military. Did you find this offensive? Negative. Yeah, I can't. I just don't. I don't know. I don't see how this is like an anti-marine or military movie. I don't. I don't see it. Yeah. Yeah, I. I don't. I don't see that one either. But those were. We found two negative reviews, so that was pretty good. All right, I'm going to read off Rotten Tomatoes reviews and IMDb, and then I'm going to ask James for yours and Alan for yours. So. We have Rotten Tomatoes coming in at 92% from the critics and 94% from the audience. Um, Critics ratings, 83 reviews and users on the audience, 325,000. So there's a lot there. Uh, Both high or I guess low to mid nineties. So pretty, pretty, pretty high. And that's always kind of, we always talk about this. That's kind of interesting because usually there's a disparity between the critics and the audiences, but they're right on the same number. Um, and then you have IMDb. IMDb comes at, this is pretty high out of 600,000 plus reviews. It's at an 8.3 out of 10. On IMDb, that's really good. Really high. So um, a couple pieces of trivia. I just have a couple of James. If you have a couple extras, we'll throw it in there. I'm just reading a couple here that I found, nothing extravagant, um, which for me as an editor, I thought was cool, nerd filmmaker. This was Stanley Kubrick's first film edited by computer rather than spliced film. So I thought that was cool because I'm a nerd. And then <clears throat> um, I thought this was cool because I found it interesting that uh, Arlie Ermey would say this, but he felt that Vincent D'Onofrio's performance was the best in the film. That's I would com- that that's coming from Arlie Ermey, who I actually thought was the best in the film. So yeah, I think Arlie Ermey definitely by far best performance, but D'Onofrio he was really good too. And then I'll my last trivia, and then I'll throw it to James for any trivia, and if not, that's fine. And then your score, James, out of ten. During filming, a family of rabbits were accidentally killed. Stanley Kubrick, an animal lover, was so upset that he canceled the rest of the day's work. How much money did that cost? <laughs> but, but isn't there the irony there of making a film about homicide, murder, war, and rabbits die, and he call, he's like, we're done. I don't know. Or, it, or you could say it's about duality of filmmaking. Just saying. Boom. Look at that. Yep. Truth bombs. With that, so. with that, lead into your rating and, or some trivia if you have it, or you're just your rating. Your summation okay. of the movie, James. Okay. All right. Well, first of all, I, I do – one other piece of trivia I know that I was going to say was I was watching the, the making of Full Metal Jacket, and they were talking about a scene that they were filming in the city uh, because they filmed the they, they filmed this combat in the city first and then basic training last. Well, anyway, they were filming the part in the city, and you know how Kubrick was. They, they were up to like 45 or 50 takes. And one of the actors is like, oh, my God, this, we're up to like 50 takes. What else, what else does Stanley Kubrick want? And Kubrick just looked at him and said, how about better acting? <laughs> so, I love that. Uh, that being said, I, I did want to go off on a slight tangent. And I apologize, but I'll make it quick. Uh, speaking of reviews, uh, there's this guy I know who's in the military with me. I'm not going to name his name. Jim Horan. Oops, sorry. Uh, <laughs> He was telling me once that uh, Born on the Fourth of July was garbage, 
but Hudson Hawk is a great movie. Just saying, because we're that, talking about reviews. That's the uh, that, that's that's a Bruce Willis movie, right? Correct. That's often yeah. cited as one of the worst movies ever made. He was comparing he, Born on Fourth of July to Hudson Hawk, and saying Hudson Hawk was better. Well, we we were talking about movies in general, and uh, he's like, "Yeah, Hudson Hawk. That's way better than some supposed classics like." As good as it gets, they're born on the 4th of July. They won Oscars, but they're garbage. Hudson Hawk is way better. So I just want to talk about reviews slightly. There. Okay, so okay. tell me, I love, uh, that's hilarious to me, because Born on 4th of July is, is a great movie. Tell exactly. me, tell me uh, your uh, review of this film. And start, does it, yeah, is it yeah. better than Hudson Hawk? Let's start there. Well, first of all, Hudson Hawk... <laughs> That My opinion of that movie is somewhere between a cockroach and the white stuff that forms on the corner of my mouth when I'm really thirsty, okay? So that should tell you what I feel about that movie. Uh, Full Metal Jacket, I'd give at least a 7 out of 10 or 8 out of 10. It's not my favorite war movie, but it's definitely very good. So 8 out of 10 what? Eight, what do you what symbols can you oh, come oh, up oh something? sorry yeah 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 give me some uh, eight eight rifles out of ten there you go what so. uh what and then as a as a side note and then we'll jump into alan's tell me your fate do you have a favorite war movie uh yeah actually and you're not gonna believe it because only like the last 30 minutes is is war uh zero dark 30 believe it or not nice yeah, yeah. that's a good movie yeah uh yeah. very good so I would say that that and probably Platoon are my now, top two. Did Catherine Bigelow direct Zero Dark Thirty? She did. And she, she did. also directed Alan's favorite movie called The Loveless. I've never, a, even, right? I've never even heard of The Loveless. It is, it <laughs> is Sorry. so beyond incredible. It stars William Defoe, and Alan absolutely loved it when I picked it for him to review. What do you think about Catherine Bigelow? Uh, William Willem Dafoe. I mean, you would think that's. I mean, it, they're both very young in their careers at this point, but you would think it'd be good, right? It's not. It's awful. Don't even bother. Never even heard of it. It's her so. first movie as a director. It's horrible. But oh, Zero okay. Dark Thirty is a great film. I agree. I like that a lot. James, yeah. nice review. I liked your uh, that extra bit of trivia. Let's jump into Alan yeah. and see where his summary and review is on his rating. Where are you at, I, Alan? I forgot to. Um, to say one thing I did like, I liked uh, when we were discussing some of the vignettes, I liked when they were interviewing the soldiers too. And I, I just wanted to say that because it actually ties into my score. Uh, was it Cowboy who said there are no horses in Vietnam? That is correct. That was a, that was a great line. He's like, there, there's not even a single horse in the country of Vietnam. Like that was pretty funny to me. Cause and that's how he, he related it to being a fucked up country. Cause there's yeah, no horses. I thought it was great but anyway this film is uh it, it's it's the duality man uh i like james that you brought that up because everything's starting to fit together now i love it when you get that little piece that you overlooked or didn't think about and it just it, everything clicks and it's kind of doing that now for me um it's two two halves are very different and the first half i think is fantastic i think that's the story that's what we needed end it there and honestly this this i would might i might give this like an 8.5 or a 9 which is very very hard for me to do uh but 
it goes on and it's just it just kind of floats after that like it's okay it's not bad some beautiful shots some great sequences uh, obviously done very well by a master filmmaker and the craft is great but the story's just not there and, and i'm not engaged i don't really care that much so uh that knocks it down quite a bit i'm gonna go i'm gonna go 7.1 horses in vietnam <laughs> 7.1 okay nice so we have i'm going with james with an eight and alan with a 7.1 so for me uh as we as we enter this phase of starting to break down some of kubrick's films um this one to me uh, i think it's a great movie i really do i was it in some way or another, even with some of the elements of confusion of, am I supposed to follow this character or this character as we get into it? Um, overall, I was enthralled. I was engaged. I was interested. Uh, a big thing for me is like, like anybody, are you losing interest and do you stop caring? And even though I was a little confused on, should I follow Joker or this little vignette or this thing? I still was engaged. Like I still, it kept me interested. Um, and uh, I think like everything, like you mentioned, Alan, like was you start talking about it, new things start coming into your mind. So now I have to go back and rewatch certain things with that new pair of eyes. Um, and James, one thing I always do on a film review and Alan knows this is like, what's the rewatchability factor? Can I rewatch this? Um, Absolutely. Over and over. Right. But every time I watch a movie, like, and then also if I can, where does it fit on the scale of rewatchability? Like, is this a yearly watch? Is it a, is it a biannual watch? Is it, is it every two years, every 10 years? What is it? And I, so I would say for me, I watch it every couple of months, like every other month or so. You're, you're, you're a frequent watcher. So absolutely. I, Just because I think, I think it's funny. So, you know, it's more, yeah, it's, you it's can not watch, a comedy, you can watch the first laugh. 20 minutes of this film, 30 minutes of this film, and just walk away happy and absolutely elated and in a good mood, I think. Well, it, exactly. It's, I tell people, I don't like a lot of comedies that come out, you know, uh, for example, and I'm mentioning this for a buddy of mine, for example, I, I didn't like comedies like Norbit or Little Nicky, right, that are supposed to be comedies to laugh at. Is I there? laugh at different. I laugh at different shit. So when I want to laugh, I watched the first half up to the helicopter scene of Full Metal Jacket. Can't stop laughing. So I, anyway. I concur. I concur. And then uh, I think it's a fantastic film. I was enthralled. I was engaged. It's a good movie. Um, I'm interested. So I'm actually going to come in. I'm going to be, I'm just going to piggyback off IMDb and I'll go higher than both of you because I still think Kubrick's a master at work here and I'm jumping on the Kubrickian train, choo-choo, whatever it's, it is what it is. You can battle me all day, but I'll go with an 8.3, just like IMDb. I'm going to go uh, an 8.3. Me love you long time. <laughs> so you guys know that that was sampled in a rap song. Back oh in yeah. The 90s? Oh yeah. Okay. Was it uh, uh, two, two live, live crew? crew? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I follow hip hop. I'm a gangster boy. <laughs> I like hip hop. Um, the the only hip hop I listen to is Tone Loke. Just saying. You like the classics, the eighty, the, the funky Cold Medina. Yep. So yep. I like the classic yeah. too. Uh, <clears throat> one thing. So we got a 
this is Full Metal Jacket, 1987 war drama by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, and one thing I want to say before we bounce out here, James, thank you uh, in all the turmoil of very serious talk because it's a war movie. Thanks for bringing Harry Hamlin, uh, Perseus, into, into this with the Medusa uh, Clash of the Titans reference. Nice job. Yeah, I thought I'd bring some levity to it. Thank so. you. That's what I, that's what I, that's, I enjoy that. Yeah. So this is uh, Gabe Allen and special guest James for the Tame Aperture podcast. Go check us out uh, at tameaperture.com. We're also streaming on all media platforms, including YouTube, Spotify, iTunes. Go have a listen to our previous episodes and jump in with suggestions on future episodes. Until next time, everybody signing off Tame Aperture. Peace. The Tame Aperture podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube.